In this series, we've been taking a big picture look at the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is not only a historically accurate description of how God led his people out of slavery 3,500 years ago, it is also a shockingly modern parable for us today as we navigate change and disruption. The story of Exodus is God putting on a masterclass for us in how to navigate change in a way that leads to growth, thriving, and joy. And it's also been, if you've noticed, a good example of how humans fall into pitfalls every step of the way along the journey. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've seen uh, how in Exodus the Israelites start out in slavery and God rescued them, but, but then from there he, he led them through some intentional steps as part of a process. That he gave them time to grieve the loss of what they had in Egypt. And then as he was leading them through the wilderness, he exposed to them some of the bad mindsets that they had been stuck in from their days in slavery. Last week, we looked at how God then uh, built an intentional covenantal community around the, the Israelites to help them rebuild their team, the people that they were gonna go through this next season of life with. And now today, we get to the next thing that God is going to, to have his people do. Uh, we're gonna be looking in Exodus 32, where God models this idea that we need to replace the good. That when we've gone through change and disruption, we have to look at what was in the past and find a way to replace the good in our lives moving forward. And if you've been noticing the pattern, we're mostly gonna be looking at today how the Israelites mess this up because that's, that's what Exodus is also about. Uh, and so before we, we get to the, the main text for chapter 32, I wanna give you two key points of context from earlier in the story of Exodus. So back when the Israelites were still in Egypt, they were still in bondage, God sprung them free by putting 10 plagues on the Egyptians, the people that were oppressing them. He inflicted 10 plagues on the Egyptians. I'm just gonna call out one as kind of an example. The first plague uh, that God did to Egypt to help get Israel out. Let's look at that in chap Exodus chapter seven. Moses and Aaron, the two leaders of the Israelites, did just as the Lord had commanded. Moses raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile River, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and so Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. This is a fascinating moment for two reasons. One is you just see how with one strike, God completely disrupts the entire Egyptian way of life. The Nile was their life source. It's where they got all of their drinking water. It's where they had all of their commerce, all of their boats traveled along the Nile. And in one shot, God wiped it out. So that's the first point. The second point is this really fascinating thing where the Egyptian magicians replicated the miracle somehow and use that as an excuse to ignore what God was trying to tell them. Now, at first blush, that seems like a pretty powerful thing that they were able to replicate a miracle of God, but on reflection, I hope you notice that it's actually kind of ridiculous uh, and, and empty of power, right? God has wiped out their economy and they've said, oh, well, we could do the same thing. 
And they use it as proof uh, to ignore God. Think of it this way. It would, it would be like God coming to you in, in the form of a spokesman and, and saying to you, all right, I'm gonna show you that God is upset with you, that I don't like what you're doing. And so to show God's disfavor, I'm going to make it rain poopy diapers on you right now for the next few days, right? And if you were to respond to that and say, oh yeah, God's not so great. We can make it rain poopy diapers on ourselves. Yeah, checkmate, God. Right, that'd be ridiculous. The real power would be in, in stopping the rain. The real power would be in, in undoing this negative, gross circumstance. There's no power in the magicians replicating, turning the, the, the water into Nile. The power would have been in making it go back to water. And so there's this funny coda to the first plague. It ends out with this little note. And so the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile to get drinking water because they couldn't drink the water of the river. I just picture them, you know, having to try to find new wells and they're trying to get enough water to feed their, to uh, support their families, let them drink it. And they're saying, aha, but we showed God, we turned the Nile into blood too. This plague and nine others emphasized over and over again the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods in the face of the power of the one true God. And then there weren't just 10 plagues. Then God leads his people out of Egypt and he takes them to a holy mountain where he comes to dwell and they see his presence in the form of lightning and clouds and fire on the mountain. And while there, God then gives his people 10 commandments. I'm not gonna go through all 10, but just the first one. The first one is, is where God says, you shall have no other gods and you won't, shouldn't make any graven images. You shouldn't make any idols or statues because I am the only God. I'm the powerful God who rescued you from Egypt. And these commandments were designed to be markers of identity, a way that, that separated out God's chosen people from the rest of the world, but they were also designed to give them guidelines and a way to live lives that would help them thrive and help their entire community thrive as well. 10 plagues that showed God's power, 10 commandments that showed God's will. And that brings us to today, Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on the mountain getting further instructions from God. And while he's gone, this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Now, when Moses came down the mountain and approached the camp. And he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets, the 10 commandments out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and he burned it in the fire. 
Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? It's an interesting step in this journey. A journey that's been largely you know, one of, of, of progress and growth. You know, they, they started in such a bad condition and God's been escalating and, and developing them and, and doing great things with them. And now we have this very stark setback. This moment where the Israelites really screw up big time. And so the question is, what are we intended to learn from this story? What is the, the, the parable that God wants us to understand as we ourselves go through disruption and change? Now, the first and most obvious take and the one that I've had for most of my life is that you look at this and you go, those Israelites were wicked. And in fact, like the main thing to learn is that they are, <laughs> that they are dumb and they're idolatrous. I mean, is that what stuck out to you as well, I, I assume? I mean, I, th- I think about it this way. God had just given them the 10 commandments. He had just told them, don't make any idols. And they're so dumb that they already did it. My own kids are not, are not angels by any means, but they're not that dumb either. If they come to me and they say, dad, can we have a popsicle? And I say, no, no popsicles until after dinner. They don't then, while I'm standing there, sidle on over to the freezer and try to sneak a popsicle out, right? (laughs) They wait, they wait for me to go do something else and then they sneak over to the freezer and get a popsicle, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Like how dumb do you have to be Israelites when you're sitting at the foot of the mountain, you can see the lightning and the fire and the storm of God's presence. He's just told you the 10 commandments and you're gonna do that? And not only that, just this idolatry that they have, how wicked are they certainly compared to us? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have never once been tempted to smelt down my precious metals and to form them together in some sort of bovine statue and worship him in my home, right? Like, I am much more righteous than these Israelites. I've got my act way better together. I'm way smarter, I'm way holier. These people are just dumb and idolatrous. And this is the main lesson I've taken from this story most of my life. Maybe you have too. And the nice thing about this is that this is a very safe, a very easy way to read scripture. Now the problem with this is that it also means that if we read scripture this way that we can let ourselves off the hook and that this story does nothing more than affirm to me that I'm smarter, I'm holier, And I can read this story, pat myself on the back, and go about my day. Because I've never worshiped a golden calf. Now the problem with that is that, uh, and this is to use a Lutheran uh, term that goes on, is uh, is that the Bible is intended to be our source and norm for life and faith. To put that in more contemporary English, what they're saying is the Bible is intended to be our guideline that transforms us into the image of Christ. That when we read the Bible, it makes us change. And if we read the Bible and we are, we are unchanged or unmoved or it doesn't have any effect on us because we don't worship golden calves, then, then we're missing the reading that, the, that God wants us to have with the Bible. And so the fact is, if we read this story and all we come away with is judgment and shame on the Israelites, then we cannot learn from their mistakes. We have to seek to understand what's going on in their hearts in this moment 
so that we don't risk overlooking the same deadly temptations that are in our own hearts here now today. So let's try again. Let's take another stab at what we should be learning from this story, uh, but let's do it by, by being a little kinder to the Israelites, a little more sympathetic as we seek to understand what's really going on underneath the surface. Maybe they're not dumb and idolatrous, or maybe that's not the, the, the most helpful way to describe it. Maybe more sympathetically, we could look at it this way, that the Israelites are self-deceiving and they're self-soothing. And think of it, we look on this in hindsight, we say they were rescued from slavery, how great for them, how, how ungrateful that they so immediately went back to the old ways, but, but, but let's look at it through this filter. They'd lived in Egypt for 400 years. We haven't even been a country that long. They'd been in Egypt longer than our countries existed and they'd gotten used to that. Egypt was home and it was oppressive and there were major problems with it. But the fact was it was a place they were used to and now suddenly they're in the wilderness and the rules are different and they're trying to follow God but, but he's not being as clear as they would like him to be. Uh, on the, in the story, Moses went up the mountain, he said, I'll be back soon and it's 40 days later. Like they've waited a month and a half and there's nothing new from God and they're starting to feel abandoned, scared, uncertain. God's not responding. They're waiting here for him and nothing's happening. And so in that absence, what are they trying to do? They're trying to pretend like life is the same as it always was. They're trying to recreate Egypt. I can sympathize with that. And then the way they try to recreate Egypt is, is the self-soothing. And again, it wasn't their gods, but, but they lived in a culture that was rich with rituals and traditions, rhythms and patterns. And now that they're out of that place, now that they're in this wilderness in a new place where there are no rituals, there are no patterns yet, they're just kind of wandering. Is it any wonder that they would seek to soothe by, by finding that thing that was familiar that reminds them of home? I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to spend extended time outside of the United States. I have, uh, as an Air Force brat and as a missionary, I've, I've spent a lot of time outside of the US. And one of the things that is very common when you have expatriates is you really start to miss peanut butter. It's true. I don't even necessarily like peanut butter that much. I don't eat it regularly, but there's something about when you go to the rest of the world because they don't have peanut butter anywhere else. It is a distinctly American thing. And you get a month in, two months in, and you suddenly just start to go, I need peanut butter so bad. <laughs> I need a taste of home. And you're trying to soothe and it's such a common experience. I can relate. I can relate to this desire that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of being in a foreign place away from home, that these are two patterns that I would embrace, that I would self-deceive, I'd self-soothe. And if now we can have this kind of kindness, this kind of empathy for the Israelites, maybe now we can, we can see the modern implications of this parable. That we ourselves who have gone through a disruption unlike any in living memory, Maybe we can have a little bit of sympathy and empathy for ourselves. That in the midst of all the changes that have faced our, our, our society, our world, our family and friends, maybe these are behaviors that we fall back on as well. I know for me, I spent the first several months of COVID saying, all right, we're just gonna get through this, we're gonna get through this, we're gonna get back to normal. And now I'm here in September of 2020 and I'm going, we're not getting back to normal. I have to stop pretending 
I have to stop living in a false hope that this is just ever gonna go away. It's not. And, and our lives, our society is gonna be fundamentally changed from here on out. And the more I try to cling to, to this idea that we could get back to it or it's just gonna disappear, the more I'm self-deceiving myself. And so then, in the midst of self-deception, I don't know about you, but I, I try to soothe. And one of the hardships about COVID is that it took away a lot of the things that we used to soothe. Like when we were in our house and the kids were just being crazy and rambunctious and energy filled, what do we do? We'd send them to the playground and let them get some energy out. And then COVID closed the playgrounds. And so we had no recourse, no way to soothe when our kids were just getting too crazy for us. Or how many of you, uh, when you get to the end of a long day or a long week and you say, you know what, I just don't wanna cook. I don't wanna have to plan anything. Let's just go out to eat and let's just soothe that way. And yet that was taken away as well. And as the familiar safe things are taken away, we're going to do much like the Israelites did. We're gonna look for things that soothe us, that, that help us feel comfort in the midst of all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the uncertainty of a new and changing time. I don't know what that looks like for you. I absolutely know what it looks like for me. I have watched more television in the last six months than I watched in the previous six years combined. And it's important for me to just recognize what's going on there. That wasn't an accident, that was me saying, all the things that I used to use are taken away. What am I gonna turn to as well? What am I gonna use to help soothe in the midst of all the stress I'm feeling in this season? And maybe if we could have some empathy for the Israelites, we could have some sympathy for ourselves. Because here's the thing, I don't know how these terms are landing on you right now, but in the Christian culture that I grew up in, the response to this, the, the, the quote unquote Christian response would have been, suck it up. I'm sorry your life's hard, too bad. Jesus's life was harder. Uh, I'm sorry you're trying to soothe yourself with these things, that's idolatrous, just stop it. Knock it off. And I hope you're, you're even hearing as I say it, that's not helpful. It's not actually effective either to just tell someone to knock it off, to, to don't need that. Well, you shouldn't even miss that thing. That was an earthly thing. You know, those soothing comforts, those are idols in your life. And we dismiss them, we minimize them, we act like the holy thing is to pretend like you don't have them or that you should only find, uh, you know, that you should be able to, to not have any earthly needs or wants or desires at all because you should just get rid of all of those in this, for the sake of being holy, being righteous, not having idols in your life like the Israelites. Now the issue is not only is that not effective or helpful, it's also not biblical. Like this is not anything that God says to us. I've had Christian people say this to me a lot. I've never had God say this to me. Just real quick, let's go to Philippians. This is what God actually says. God says, and my God, our God, the God of the Israelites, the God of us today, he will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God doesn't say, oh, you, you, you're, you're soothing, you're, you're missing things, you have needs that are, that are being unmet in a time of disruption. God doesn't say, suck it up. God says, I want to meet all your needs. And maybe we're okay with this part, but I think this word all trips us up sometimes too. Well, not all the needs. There, there are holy needs, there are holy desires, but, but there are some needs that I should just get rid of, that I should just not have, that I should sacrifice on the cross. 
And we think that in fact, that we need to live with holes in our hearts, walking around because that's righteous suffering to take some of our needs and say, no, I don't really need this and I'm just gonna submit it and get rid of it and ignore it. That's not what the Bible says. Because there's something in this word all, he wants to meet all of our needs that, that needs to fundamentally shift how we think about our desires. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, he describes it this way. He says, every felt desire is at root a longing for God, although it often goes unrecognized as such. Every felt desire is a longing for God. Larry Crabb has read Philippians 4. See, he goes on to say, the addict who's seeking out their next fix, they're looking for God in that moment. The corporate climber who's salivating over the next big close, he actually wants God in that action. But the fact is, so few of us have ever had a truly good taste of God that we settle for less. The problem is not our desires themselves. The problem is that we seek to fulfill our desires in something less than what God would have us fill it with. That he wants to meet our needs. And so whatever you've felt in your life, whatever is the most shameful or embarrassing desire you've had, whatever need that you've, you've worried is, is too little or too weird or not something that you should have, let me tell you now, God wants to meet all your needs. And every desire you've ever had, no matter how, how little you thought it was or insignificant or, or how weird, it's a desire that is at its deepest root is a way that God wired you to long for him. And so don't deny your desires, admit them, embrace them, and then let's do the hard work of figuring out how exactly God wants you to fill them, how he wants to meet your needs. You see, the amazing thing about Exodus 32 is that the desires of the Israelites were not wrong. The things that they wanted to soothe, the, the fact that they needed soothing, the fact that they were looking to rituals, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that they had this mighty, powerful God on a mountain in front of them who'd rescued them. And instead of turning to him to fill their needs, to soothe them, they turned back to Egypt and they tried to soothe them in another way. And I think they represent some things that we still very much do today. Two, two kind of quick ideas. They were clinging to the past. That all too often when we're trying to have our desires filled, when it seems like God is slow in coming, we remember the good old days even if they weren't all that good to begin with. Egypt was a place of slavery and oppression for them, and yet they were clinging to the past as a way to soothe their desires, a way to meet their needs. And then not only that, that they had mistaken form for substance. They, they'd remembered those rituals of worship and the ways that the community gathered in front of a God, and they thought that was powerful, that was meaningful. And they didn't understand that, that there is power in ritual, but it's gotta have something living inside of it. Empty dead rituals don't actually soothe. 
And the whole time they were missing the fact that there was a God in front of them who was giving to Moses new rituals, new ways and rhythms and patterns that were going to fulfill them because they were rituals built around a living, powerful God, not reminders of a dead past. And I see that same tendency in us. It's so easy to cling to the past. As life gets hard and weird right now, it's so easy to, to, to long and yearn for those, those glory days of, of the 50s or maybe the 80s or the early 2000s. And even though those times were not actually as good as we, we like to remember that they were, more importantly, there's this truth that when we're clinging to the past, that will always be death because we don't have a God of the past. We don't have a God of old dead things. We have a God of the new. We have a God who says, I am constantly making all things new in your life and ours. And he is always encouraging and inviting his children to strain ahead, to look ahead to this future that he is carving out and creating for us. And when we turn our gaze to the past, we're cutting ourselves off from looking at the God of our future. And at the same time, we, we have to distinguish between the form of something and the true substance underneath it, the thing that actually gave it life and meaning. Let me give you a more personal example, kind of a religious one. Uh, you might not know this about me, but personally, when it comes to worship, I really prefer hymns. I grew up singing hymns, they're, they're my personal style. And there are some people here that prefer modern contemporary worship, and that's okay too, as long as we're talking this word of preference. But in our denomination, there's, there's, this, um, there's this attitude, this, this, this pervasive opinion that says that hymns are right and holy and the only good way to worship God. And contemporary songs, they're weird uh, and they're f fluffy and light uh, and, and too emotional. And that hymns are objectively better than contemporary worship songs. Now again, I have a preference for hymns, but when we start talking this way about hymns are better, hymns are theological, notice maybe some of the patterns there, some of the trends. You're, it's clinging to what is past. It's clinging to this old way of doing church that felt really good at the time. And then the second thing is there is this risk that we would mistake the form for the substance, that we'd start to think, oh, the form of a hymn is what makes it good instead of whether the substance was actually good. And the form of a contemporary song, that must be what makes it wrong instead of whether the substance makes it wrong. And to help drive this home, I'm gonna pick on one of my own favorite hymns. This is my favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. You all know it, you've all heard of it. It's this beautiful hymn. It's been around for a couple, couple hundred years. Everyone loves it. You might not have paid attention to the second verse though. This is the second verse of Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Again, it's beautiful. I've had this memorized and drilled into my head since I was little singing this song. The, the problem is, you might not even know this, this is theologically terrible. This is a wrong theology uh, because it mixes up grace and law. And if you actually took it seriously, it paints this really weird distorted picture of God's character and personality. And it's not just my opinion. If you look in the Lutheran hymnal, it has amazing grace in it. It does not have this verse in it. They've literally taken out the second verse of amazing grace because it's so wrong theologically. But if we assume that because it's old or because it has the form of a hymn that it's powerful and good, then you could end up with a really toxic view of who God is and how he feels for you and what his grace in your life looks like. 
But let me now contrast this with a different lyrical description of God's grace, one that you are maybe exposed to for the first time just here now today in the service, in the song, Another in the Fire. I'd never heard this song before this week, but notice these lyrics. It's describing grace, and it, but it's saying there's a grace when the heart is under fire, when we're going through disruption and change and stress and persecution, this is what grace looks like. The grace is that there was another in the fire with us, standing next to me, that there was another in the waters holding back the seas. When the Israelites went through the Red Sea, there was another one there with them. And when I am stressed and when I'm self-deceiving, when I'm trying to soothe, when I should ever need reminding of the power of God who set me free, not just from slavery in Egypt, but from sin, death, and the devil himself, then there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. Now, this is a theologically beautiful and accurate picture of grace. This is what God is offering to you and me, and it's what he offered to the Israelites on the mountain in Exodus 32, that he is a God of power and might, and that no matter how hard life gets, no matter what changes or disruptions are there, when we feel like we're in the fire or like we're drowning or the walls are crumbling in, what God's grace says to us is, I'm right there with you. And he's not there to to judge or to teach your heart to fear. Like that's not actually what God's grace is doing. His grace is saying, it's not too strong for me. And I'm in the fire too. And what he does in that moment is not tell you that you shouldn't be worried about these things, that you shouldn't be bothered by the fire, you shouldn't be worried about the waves. What he says is, how can I meet your desires? How can I soothe you instead of you settling for soothing somewhere else instead? Let me just quote Jesus directly about this. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying to these people that that are hurting, that are scared, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? All of the desires, right? For the pagans, they run after all these things. Now again, don't make the flip that is so easy to make, that you think he would say, oh, the pagans run after these things, and so therefore Christians don't need these things. That's the contrast we wanna make. The pagans run after these things, but you don't need these things. That's not what Jesus says. He says, the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows that you need to be soothed. He knows that you need to have these needs met, that you have desires that he wants to fill. But then here's the answer. Here's the answer Jesus himself gives. And so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And then all of these things, all of your desires will be given to you as well. He's modeling this switch. He says, look, instead of stressing out, how am I gonna get food? How am I gonna provide? How am I gonna earn enough? He says, no, no, no. Shift your, your anxious thoughts into how am I gonna lean into this God who loves me today? And when you do that, God's gonna gonna actually give you the strength, the wisdom, the peace that allows you to earn the things that you need to earn to survive. He will give you your daily bread. Or if if we're tempted to make an idol out of our family and to say, oh, I I need to take care of my family. My family's the most important thing. The, The family's what I'm gonna spend all my energy on. God says, no, 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 no. Seek first my kingdom, seek me. 
And when you do, I'm going to help you be the best person for your family that could be. I'm gonna make your family a, a redeemed place of community and love and grace. See, when you seek me first, you get your family back in a better way. The picture on Exodus 32 is a picture of people that have these desperate needs and desires, but they just don't wanna admit them to themselves. And so then almost subconsciously, they settle for whatever's most convenient, whatever's around them. And instead, God is inviting you and he's inviting me to face these desires, these things that have been disrupted in the midst of, of catastrophic change. And he says, but now don't just deny them, offer them up to me and let me fill them in a new way. Let me take this good thing that you've lost and let me replace the good with something better, something for your future, something that I, your loving God, want to give you. See, ultimately, here's the picture. Here's how we can uh, redeem this thing that we learned from the Israelites in Exodus, that we can be reemergent, which means instead of being self-deceiving, instead of trying to deny these things, we can let God illuminate our desires. Because if none of our desires are, are, are sinful or wrong, then we can, we can actually let them be exposed. We can bring them to light and say, God, this is what I've got. And then we can actually do the hard work to say, and so what was wrong with that other way that I had to fill this desire? I picture people that try to get over uh, addiction. Uh, and I, I have a few people in my life that, that uh, for example, were, were smokers. And they talk about the good things that they got from smoking that they'd go out and they'd take smoke breaks with all of their, their coworkers. And, and so that was a, a steady thing that they got to see their friends. It was, it was a really good time for community. And when they stopped smoking, they no longer were hanging out with their coworkers anymore. Or that it was a time of, of mindfulness. You know, like you're in the middle of a stressful, busy day and, and you, you go take your smoke break and now there's this, this moment where, where it's quiet and peaceful. And if we don't have to be afraid of our desires, then we, we can pull those good things out. We can say, what was good about the smoking? The addiction part wasn't good. The, the nicotine, that wasn't good. Community was good. Mindfulness and, and, and de-stressing, that was good. And we can pull those things out and then we can submit them and let Christ guide those comforts. We can ask him to redeem those things and say, all right, God, how would you like me to find community, to find mindfulness and meditation? If it's not in this old thing, maybe it can be in this new thing. And the promise that he makes and the example that I hope you are encouraged by in this story is that he is powerful to comfort and give you good things even in the midst of disruption. And that when we turn our eyes to him, he will meet and fulfill our desires and needs in ways that are far more life-giving than whatever it was we settled for in the past. And that he in his grace, in his mercy is just so eager. He's right there on the mountain in front of you, waiting to help you replace the good that you had lost from Egypt. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm just humbled that I've spent so much of my life trying to crucify these things that, that I thought were, were a sign of my weakness, a sign of my frailty. And yet all along, Lord, you have known my desires because you are the one who created me. 
You made me uniquely and you knew the longings that you put in my heart. And you have grieved as you've watched me settle for less. As I've self-deceived and self-soothed with things that did not come from you. As I found earthly ways that would not actually satisfy these deepest longings of my heart because they were ultimately longings for you. And so Lord God, right here and now, I ask you to help me cast my vision towards you. Help me to see you in the way that you would lovingly, kindly fulfill every one of my desires in a way that is life-giving for me and for the world. So Lord, help me not to settle for less. Help me to cling to you instead. Amen. I know it's helpful for me to sometimes seal up uh, a new teaching or or a reflection on scripture. And so we're gonna invite you to sing a song here momentarily. And it is a hymn because again, it's not about the form, it's about the substance. And this hymn has beautiful words that remind us that when we keep our eyes on God, he can fulfill all of our needs regardless of the other things that we might be tempted to settle for in the world around us. So let's, let's sing this song together and let's invite God to be our true vision who fulfills and meets all of our needs. Amen.